Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you pull a 15-year-old off the street and ask them if they know who Brad Pitt or Gwyneth Paltrow are, they're going to say, oh yeah, my mom watches some movies with them. Right. Right? If you ask them, do you know who Jennifer Aniston Mm -hmm. is? That 15-year-old knows friends with the same reverence that we did back then, which is kind of wild. Hi, this is Lainey Louie. I write about celebrity culture at LaineyGossip.com, and I'm an entertainment reporter and talk show host. I'm Duanna Taha, a television screenwriter and producer, and we are obsessed with the work of the entertainment industry. And this is Show Your Work, our podcast about the celebrity ecosystem and the work that goes into your favorite shows, movies, music, and stars. This week, we're talking about Jennifer Aniston's return to television on Apple Plus and how her work and celebrity culture has changed since she was last on the small screen. And we'll talk about Hazan Minaj, whose show, Patriot Act, is successful, even though he refuses to play by Hollywood rules. And the baller move, the person who made a surprise power player out of a news anchor from an unexpected place, Fox News. This is Show Your Work. And we're back. Welcome back, everybody. Hi. Thanks for your patience. Um, We had to get through... The film festival, the Emmys, lots of other work, but we are back to show your work. And I think it's good that we're here when we're like agitating a bit for it. I was ready to get back to the podcast. You know, when you start thinking of things like, oh, why aren't we talking about this? Why aren't we podcasting about that? Then you're like, okay. There wasn't a shortage of show your work questions, topics, discussions, debates all summer, um, and there's still no shortage. We're coming back right at the start, or we're really into award season, and it's a shorter award season this year. The Oscars are going to be earlier. Everybody's out on the campaign. So um, thank you so much for all of your suggestions and for waiting, too. I mean, it's super flattering. Oh, A hundred percent. And for thinking of us when stories come up, uh, that's really great. When you're like, are you going to cover this? And I'm like, oh, we really should. Um, So that's always appreciated that we're in your minds uh, and that the, yeah, the stories keep coming and people keep seeing them from a work context is better than ever. Not only that, but I mean, it's almost, it's almost getting to the point where the work is an avalanche. Two major streaming services are about to launch, um, probably in about two weeks. Apple Plus TV, Apple TV Plus, whatever the name is, is 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 coming. Disney Plus is coming. HBO Max is coming. Oh, you're giving me anxiety. Exactly. This and the shortened award season, which you're the only person who talks about it with relish. You're like, it's shorter. It's it's more hardcore. I'm starting to get panicked and. We're now in a position where it is actually a legit concern of people in our business to say, how am I going to watch it all? How am I going to see it all? Yeah. Like, that is, I think, a thing that people don't 
know is that certainly as a writer, when you go to meetings, you're expected to have a general ability to talk about what's happening on TV. Have you seen this? Have you seen that? You can say, oh, I haven't got to that for one thing. But if you pass on a few, it's like, "Mm mm-mm. So I think also I want to know what your strategies are for seeing or clocking everything. And uh, if you guys have thoughts on how you touch in on each and every show or output or and know that it's for you, let us know. Because I'm, I'm constantly trying to reform that work process. Well, not that it's a boohoo situation, but for those of us who work in the industry, watching TV especially has become work. Um, you know, typically you kind of check out on the weekend and you binge watch a certain show. Now the binge watching is homework. Oh, 100%. And yeah, you got to choose between binging and should I sample a bit of everything so that I know what's going on? Yeah. I'm, for example, getting ready for, well, we both are, the Golden Globes. Um, The nominations are coming in less than eight weeks. Golden Globe Sunday is essentially right after the holidays. Like it feels like it's coming right up down your throat immediately. Thanks. Um, Again, again, (laughs) my nausea is rising. So that is about 10 weeks to, if people haven't caught up on Succession, Killing Eve, Fleabag, um, and whatever last minute under... And whatever last minute under the gun shows that the Hollywood Foreign Press Association ends up like putting in under the wire for their nominations, because I don't like their deadlines seem to be way tighter than the Emmys, for example. Do you mean eligibility? Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes they're nominating a show that literally just premiered a month ago. Well, you know what my hope is. Uh, The weirdest show that I am deeply obsessed with that has not been talked about uh, that may or may not appeal to the Hollywood foreign press is on Becoming a God in Central Florida. Yeah. Uh, which stars Kirsten Dunst, George Clooney is an executive producer, but it's otherwise a cast of very, very new... Beth Ditto. Well, Beth Ditto is, yes, absolutely is a surprise. Um, but it's not a, a cast of thousands and not a lot of people are talking about it, but God, this show is weird and great and pushes all kinds of buttons. Do I think it's likely to get a Globe nomination? Not really. But She will. You think she will? I do think the Hollywood Foreign Press Association likes Kirsten Dunst, and I would not be, and that's a great example, I would not be surprised to see her name show up. Maybe not the show yet, but I wouldn't be surprised to see her name show up. Um, because also, the Golden Globes like being early. Earlier than the Emmys. Absolutely right. And they do watch things. They've rewarded uh, The Affair and other kind of shows that float just below the radar. Um, they were on Jane the Virgin before the you know Emmys what? were. Um, and they're the, actually, you know, on the television side, they're always ahead of the curve of, of the Emmys. Like, we laugh at the Hollywood Foreign Press Association because they're absurd. And kind of extra <laughs> in the most delicious way. Exactly. But... I will say that they they are earlier on the jump, and maybe it's because of the time of year that uh, that they get to have their awards handed out. But they seem to be um, ahead of the curve, so I would not be surprised to see Kiki there. Um, and but that's what I mean to go back to our original point. People are going to have to be binging that one probably along with all the rest. I mean, I think the last year, last year in 2018, the count was something like 568 or so series. Now with the addition, uh, stressing you out again, Duanna, of 
HBO Max and Apple and Disney, it is going to be almost, I, I just don't know how people in the industry are going to do it. Yeah. And I, you know, anecdotally, people watch a couple of episodes of things and either tune in and care and follow it all the way through or they don't. Uh, is that super fair? Not necessarily. But I think that's how they do it. And the early homework assignment for you guys who are listening is check out on Becoming a God in Central Florida. If you haven't already, it's on Showtime and I believe on Crave in Canada and see if it hits you or not. And with that in mind, I guess it's fitting that we're coming back to our first uh, episode of the season with an all-TV lineup. Funny, I didn't think of it that way, but you're absolutely right. Not all scripted and certainly not all network, but yep. definitely uh, TV is the medium of the moment. Yep. I'm sure that somewhere somebody could write an essay about when movies were the cultural sort of defining product and when music was, but TV is it right now. TV is it. And um, as I said, Apple is coming out strong in two weeks. Their first series uh, was ordered for two seasons right off the top. Um, and it's a high-profile, big-ass project starring, and these two women are also producing behind the scenes, Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon. Steve Carell um, also stars. Uh, Gugu Mbatha-Ra is in here. It's a great cast. Um, the Junket is just actually happening this weekend. You know, by the time you listen to this, The Junket will have happened three days ago. So they're getting ready to push. Um, this is the television series of the month that everybody's talking about. And of course, we're talking about The Morning Show is the name of it. And it's been around in kind of the consciousness and people have been talking about it for so long that it's a bit surreal that it's actually happening. It's kind of like when, you know, when it finally Christmas appears and you're like, yeah. oh, it's actually here. And I guess there's a conversation to be had about, you know, are people going to sign up for Apple TV Plus, as it is called, in time for the launch? You know, how long do they get people in before it drops? But I'm very excited about this show in general uh, and specifically, there was a Variety article that dropped this week with Jennifer Aniston that is full of work and deliciousness and juice about the show. It is um, related to her being named one of uh, Variety's six power of women in their annual issue. And the timing, obviously, is specifically in line with the launch of uh, um, The Morning Show. And as you mentioned, Duanna, this deal, I think, was done three years ago almost when they were talking about a bidding war. So Reese and Jen took the project uh, that is loosely based on a book that you love, Top of the Morning, Brian Stelter's book about morning TV. Still a great read. I say it every season, but guys, read this book. Does not get old. So... They were going to do a TV show, a series based on this book. They shopped it around, as you do, to all the networks and the streamers. And Apple was in like the process of, of making their streaming service. And, well, Apple just really put more money than anybody else. <laughs> and um, But they gave it a two-season order right off the top, which is, Duanna, you can speak to this, unusual. It's fairly unusual, although since uh – episode orders are so much shorter now. 
it's not that crazy. But they did do something really interesting in production that we'll get to in a minute within those episodes that I want to talk about. So yeah, two series or sorry, two seasons right off the top. And then they have said now that they're doing media around it. They had to completely kind of throw out the storytelling when, of course, the Harvey Weinstein story broke. And then uh, six weeks later, the Matt Lauer NBC story broke and they realized we need to tell this story differently. So here we are. We're about two weeks away from the launch of the series. Jennifer Aniston's doing interviews. And I have to say that over the last 12 months, her press and the way she's managed her image has shifted to Jennifer Aniston, comma, boss, comma, creator. As opposed to, you could argue, earlier in her career where that really wasn't the strategic focus of, of much of her media. It wasn't, um, it wasn't welcomed either. You know, uh, years ago when she was a massive star, she's still a massive star, but Jennifer Aniston in your project was the biggest thing that you could do. It sort of was seen as almost a distraction to be interested in producing, to be interested in writing and crafting. And Jennifer Aniston was colloquially sort of one of those people who was like, I just want to focus on the acting, focus on the script and deliver the best that I can. Uh, she says something to that effect in the piece. And that was almost seen as, you know, well, that's why she's good. That's why she's great. Cause she's not trying to get her hand in all these different pies, which, uh, you know, in retrospect, you're like, wow, there's some inherent misogyny there for sure. Uh, but yeah, she's now much more open anyway about her interest in the work of it, as you say, and the behind the scenes of it. But yeah. she's been later to come to it, right? She's been later to come to it. And now that she's here, I mean, she is talking openly about how fucking hard it is, right? To be an actor on the series, but also to produce behind the scenes. She talks about how she's like super exhausted, um, that she had to basically go under the covers for, I don't know, a whole week or two after they had wrapped because this was a full body experience. Which, you know, I think that's really entertaining because of her previous experiences. Like, again, she's been working since time began. She hasn't stopped working since Friends, right? We all know all those Friends actors have all the money in the world. None of them ever needed to work again. But Jennifer Aniston has worked constantly between a million movies and uh, endorsements and whatever else, as opposed to, say a David Schwimmer who will go away for 10 years at a time and then show up playing Robert Kardashian. Right. Or, I mean, Matthew Perry, who probably has worked the least out of all of them. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess so. I think about, yeah, he did a string of movies sort of when Friends was still in production. Mm -hmm. And then in the immediate aftermath, he did a lot of rom-coms when that was still a thing, right? That sort of mid-budget rom-com. I couldn't name you a Matthew Perry project in the last 10 years. No, I don't think I could either. I thought you were going to say I couldn't name you a Matthew Perry project back then. And I'm like, oh, they all had three words, like <laughs> fools rush in and whatever the one was, Nev Campbell. And, uh, you know, just a dance. That's not a real movie. But that idea. Yeah. So, I mean, 
I agree. Out of all of them, Jennifer Aniston probably has been the busiest. And yet this is, this is the push, right? This is the big return to television. She's been busy, but it's been outside of TV. It's been film. It's been endorsements. This is the first Jennifer Aniston appearance on regular series television uh, since the wrap of Rachel Green. But that's what's so interesting because how, how do we define a generation? How many years constitutes a generation? Do you know? No, but I, in my, for me personally, it'll be, it's going to be 20. So it's been almost a generation. It says it's been 15 years is how this article in Variety begins since Jennifer Aniston signed off as Rachel Green as friends. Yeah. So she has not been on TV in almost a generation. Correct. So when she talks about being exhausted and it's so different and whatnot, I was a little bit smug, to be honest with you, because it's like, yeah, that's what the work of TV is now. That's what we're doing here in terms of the amount of time that's spent, the amount of thought process that goes into it, even with the the way that this script uh, that's been around since 2017 has been worked and reworked and reproduced and so forth. It's like, yeah, welcome to it. It's different. Well, it's actually different and interesting how our perspectives change about work, specifically her perspective on work, because back in the day when she was working on one of the most successful television shows of all time, that was a network comedy series, Half Hour, that was standard 22, 24 episodes per season. She did that for a decade. Right. And back then, it felt to them as a handcuff. I have to work on this show for X amount of months of the year, most of the year. I only get, let's say, from April to July, beginning of August off. Otherwise, I'm doing just this one show. They used to talk about it. I mean, in the old hierarchy of film, TV, et cetera, that was one of the, like, the things that they bitch about, right? I'm so committed to this one thing. I don't get time to do movies because the movie window that I have is only three months in the summer. And now, given the landscape of TV, even though there are shorter, even though there are shorter episode orders, you are working more intensely and her perspective has changed. She's almost looking back as, as, as a, you know, those friends days as like an, a halcyon time. And yet... Um, if you were to ask her, let's say in, I don't know, 2001, she may have said something different. Like, well, I mean, it's, I'm working all the time. And I mean, she was, part of it is that the projects themselves are so different in the way they're produced. Allow me to nerd out for a second. Uh, I always talk about how writing is the job that means you have homework for the rest of your life. And I resent having signed up for a career, which I would never leave, which is what I do, that means you have homework for the rest of your days. There's always something that you could be doing. The way that Friends and other network three-camera shows worked, she would have had to be physically on set, give or take Monday to Friday, 12, 14, 16 hours. There's almost no escape between rehearsals and pre-tapes and then doing the live to tape recording of the show. She would have physically had to be there, right? Yep. When she was off though, on the weekends, on the dark weeks, on whatever, it's off, off. There's nothing to be doing. That's not su super true because I'm sure there were press requirements and 
you know, maybe fittings and so forth. But that part of the work is is gone away. But now on the morning show uh, and as an executive producer, she's reading every draft, giving notes on every draft of the script. They're talking about things that are happening in the world and how we're going to affect them in these shows. I should also point out that the writer and showrunner of the morning show is Carrie Aaron, who is an incredibly decorated writer who came from uh, Friday Night Lights and Parenthood and Bates Motel most recently. So a super experienced producer and I think who is maybe making a conscious choice or maybe they've negotiated that she's not going to be super in front of the press for this show the way showrunners sometimes are yeah. with with less recognizable performers, right? But the work doesn't end because A, it's not... Friends essentially did not ever address things that were happening in the world, right? It was, they existed in a fantasy universe, in a fantasy New York, essentially. Yeah. And because uh, there's such a bigger role to have taken place. Whereas on a movie that she might have done, she might have done 13 shoot days, Mm -hmm. 12 or 25 or whatever, but they can be spread out. They can be three days in this location and then seven days in another and so forth. It's not the same consistent intensity. No, it's not. And um, I mean, listen, there's no like conclusion here. It's just interesting how all of our work perspectives have shifted about what work is, when work is, right? Um, In any industry. Well, absolutely. Yeah. The idea of work creep following you is really fascinating Um, that, you know, there's always something you can be doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing that I think is really interesting here is that obviously we know Apple TV Plus. What did we decide? Apple Apple Plus TV. Um, (laughs) Apple Apple TV Plus. Yeah, Apple equals TV. Sure. Um, Obviously, we know they have more money than God. But she describes something in this article in Variety. Uh, They ask, were all the episodes done out of order? And she says... Most of them were. We'd shoot this and then we'd say, well, we'll throw in some of episode 104. And while we're adding a scene from 107, you have to go, Mm -hmm. where was I and where will I have gone by then? Yeah. So that's called block shooting. I'm sure that it was not just done on the fly. Oh, let's just say this little thing and we'll use it in 104. Maybe a little bit. But shooting all of the elements in one given location or one given uh, situation is called block shooting. And that used to be fundamentally a, like a, a cost saving measure, yeah. right? That you don't have to go back to that place or whatnot five different times over your season, uh, that you shoot everything out that you're going to do in that place. But obviously Apple TV is not hurting for money. The morning show is not going to be hurting for money. <laughs> no. So obviously that means that there is a creative reason to do that, to go to that to sort of mix up those things, it is harder. It is exponentially harder to shift from what's happening in 107 to 104 to whatever. Again, Friends would have shot the episode of the week during that week. And movies do not change, right? A character can arc over the course of a movie. And sometimes you do shoot the last scene first, but you know the story in its entirety from the day that you read the script, mm-hmm. essentially. It's not changing and evolving all the time like that. Well, especially now since television series, each episode is almost like a mini-movie. 
You mean in terms of like the scope of it? Yeah. Uh-huh. Like if you think about Game of Thrones, towards the last two seasons, every episode was a mini movie. So um, what they're doing is doing that process week by week by week. Absolutely. And keeping the characters you know, narrative arcs going, they're much more dense within an episode as well as within a season. Again, not to keep going back to Friends because it was a different time and all of TV was different, but, you know, the character of Rachel might change from season to season, but there weren't changes within an episode where at the beginning and the end of the episode, she's in a different place. Or if they were, that was the real pinnacle turning point of the season, right? Where oh, I've just realized I'm in love. The evolution of characters and interplay between the two, because she doesn't talk a lot here about the the Reese Witherspoon character and the dynamic between those two yeah. characters, but that that is a constantly evolving thing. That's why TV can be so compelling when it's essentially about people talking in a room. I think it's also so interesting that she is my best example or has become my best example of that ongoing conversation that is changing about TV film hierarchy and the shifting landscape between um, which one is taken more seriously and which one has people flocking to. Uh, Because 100% this was a TV star who wanted to make it in film. And yet it is this show, Friends, and the life it's been given on Netflix Mm -hmm. that has sustained her popularity in some measure. I mean, yes, she's a ubiquitous presence on magazine covers, but we all know that there's a new generation of TV watcher that is whatever, millennial and younger Gen Z, who are parked on Netflix, who are going back to these older shows, falling in love with them, and thereby not necessarily resurrecting in Jennifer Aniston's case, but in other people's for sure, but in her case, sustaining and kind of boosting her along because she hasn't really had a hit in terms of film. No. So Friends remains the most successful thing she's ever done. As you said, 15 years ago, she packed up Rachel Green and embarked on what was she was hoping to be a movie star career. And now we've come full circle, Right. We've come back to a streaming environment, not Netflix, but Apple TV+. Um, But in that streaming environment, she has been a presence. She is a queen. Yeah, for sure. And I believe and have always believed that the reason that TV dominates is because people just want to hang out with those people that they like, right? Um, And now more than ever, when people are at home and they interact socially on their phones or through Netflix or whatever, that makes a lot more sense. It's also that thing where, you know, when actors would be offered Harry Potter and they'd say, I was sort of like, yeah, sure. And then my kids freaked out. Yeah. And those kids are the ones who are spending the money. I think if you pull a 15-year-old off the street and ask them if they know who Brad Pitt or Gwyneth Paltrow are, they're going to say, oh yeah, my mom watches some movies with them. Right. Right? Because they are neither Marvel movie stars, nor are they on TV. If you ask them, do you know who Jennifer Aniston Mm -hmm. is? That 15-year-old knows friends with the same reverence that we did back then, which is kind of wild. Well, 
and curiously, I mean, it's this is why we're talking about her and this this weekend. This is the 20th anniversary of its debut. Mm-hmm. So the show is 25 years old now. She's been around, or at least Jennifer Aniston, capital letters, bold face, bold type, the way we know her for 25 years. And yet, to your point, a 15-year-old is is still really excited about her in the moment. What I think is funny is she's kind of straddling both worlds, like her perspective about work and getting around it and putting her mind around it and her her sort of mind, like brain around it. It's the same thing with streaming versus conventional, the way she came up in television, because she says this thing, um, she says this thing in the Variety interview where she talks about streaming and she talks about having to understand it given that she came from conventional TV. And, um, you know, she's asked, do you think streaming is the new future of Hollywood or is it a phase? And she says, I quote, I don't know. I'm shocked this is where we are, but excited that this is where we are. I didn't see it coming. I remember not understanding. What the hell does streaming mean? They're like, it's there all the time. So tuning in on a Thursday night at eight o'clock is not a thing anymore. Or you're not going to the bathroom on a commercial break and someone yells, it's back on. That doesn't happen anymore. It's kind of sad. She uses the word sad to talk about the Thursday night at eight o'clock, which is, of course, that was the time slot where Friends, I think, premiered and stayed, right? Did it ever have a different... No, that's not true. It began at 9.30, I think, in the original beginning. Yeah. I think that... They, it came on after Seinfeld, if I remember correctly. I could be wrong. Because, At the beginning it did, and then it was Seinfeld after. Right, because the network thought it was maybe sexy or racy, right. and they should put it at 9.30. And then when it was an immediate giant hit, they oh, moved it to 8 o'clock. I mean, that whole must-see TV or whatever, that Thursday night ownership by NBC was, you know, Friends, Seinfeld, ER, like back to back to back. That's two hours of, like, really crazy addictive television. Well, and without getting into sort of the math of NBC, eventually they had Friends at 8, a million different shows at 8.30, from Caroline in the City to, uh, I don't know, was Will and Grace in there at some point? Or Will and Grace Tuesdays? They would launch off of the back of Friends, whatever was at 8.30, and off the back of Seinfeld, which was at 9, whatever they would put at 9.30, and then go into ER. So anyway, back to my point about her like wrapping her head around things. Like for her, it it was just so funny to me. I laughed out loud at this answer of hers because here she is, the premiere show, the flagship show of a brand new streaming series, like with the richest company in the world. And she's like nostalgically talking about commercials. I, well, yeah, but I do see that, you know, it is part of that thing. And this is where she doesn't get those 15 year olds, right? Because those commercials, that eight o'clock thing was, it was a sense of community. You knew that everybody you knew was racing to the couch for whatever show was your thing, right? Yeah. You don't, don't call me between this time and that time or the phones start ringing uh, off the hook at (laughs) nine o'clock when something's over so that you can talk about it. I do see that that sort of event moment has gone away. At the same time, I think she's clearly quite conflicted. You talked about her straddling these two generations. She also says a great line when they ask her about, you know, meeting with Apple at first. Uh, And she said uh, in this article, "Um, Apple's pretty awesome. They make cool stuff. So why wouldn't they maybe make cool television? 
And then she says, and in spite of their comical secrecy, which is true because Apple Plus was such a uh, an ephemeral idea for a long time. She says, in spite of their comical secrecy, it's been worth it. Who doesn't want to be part of the wild, wild west? And that attitude of let's go forward is what's going to keep her alive, right? Is what's going to keep her from being a relic. If you are the kind of star who's like, no, no, I only want to do movies. I only want to do big studio movies or whatever. Leonardo DiCaprio. Mm. <laughs> and you miss what's going by. Right. You miss what's happening with, uh, you know, with euphoria, with succession, with God, what else is happening recently? Orange is the New Black has launched so many stars mm-hmm. and was a, you know, it was the first real dumping of a big season on Netflix at the time. And everybody's like, well, huh? Pardon? Yeah. Um, if you issue that kind of thing, you're going to miss the boat. So I think what we might agree about Jennifer Aniston is that she has been shrewd for years and years about her career, right? Or openly studying how to sustain her career. You're looking at me a little bit skeptically. Yeah, skeptically because I do think, and I go back to my point about the the shift in hierarchy and power and where power is for the culture, the power of television and how I don't know, I don't, I don't think if I had to put money on it, that she would have guessed that when she left Friends that she'd be coming back at the age of 50 to television to to be in the wild, wild west. But I, I, I do think that she's left herself nimble enough, how about that, well, to I, be able to come back. I think that's, yeah, I think if you go back and look at her at, in 2004 or 2010 or whatever, she was always appeared to be and was open about appearing to be choosing projects that would let her do different stuff or more and like had some flops along the way as everybody does. Did she always make the right decision? Not necessarily, but I think she's always been open about that being her focus. What else can I do? And yes, is nimble and now shrewd enough that this is the move, right? This is the move too, because listen, all around her, her peers, her friends, um, the people she came up with, Reese Witherspoon, Reese Witherspoon played her sister. Oh, that's right. In Friends are making huge success and taking home trophies on television. I mean, when Nicole Kidman is like winning award after award for a television series and Sandra Bullock is, you know, she hasn't done a series, but she was like one of the biggest things on Netflix, December 2018. Mm-hmm. And Reese Witherspoon is going up on stage while like, you know, her Oscar's in the bathroom, but also like saying, oh, no, 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 I'm doing TV now. I mean, when she looked around her Jennifer Aniston, I think she was like, oh, shit, I got to get caught up. For sure. But I guess I don't necessarily think that there have been boats that she's missed on TV. Like, it's also that thing about timing, right? Yes, This is the time, this is the project. Great point. That makes it the place to go. Yeah, great point. So, I mean, for us going forward, you know, we've already been excited about this show. We've talked about it since the announcement. The trailer excited both of us. Hugely. Um, We're tuning in. Apple TV Plus is getting the money. 
Well, <laughs> let's talk about that. Do you actually have your subscription in place? Do you know how to do it? Have you done that? No, I haven't thought about it um, in terms of like the logistics of having to get the morning show on wherever I'm going. That said, I know that it's going to be downloadable to my device. I happen to be on holiday. Uh, <laughs> I'm going on holiday uh, mid-November, which is about a week after it drops. So I'm going to be binging it on my holiday. Like it's already a thing. All right. Um, I actually am a little bit annoyed with you that I'm going to have to wait to talk about this, not on the day uh, that uh, I'll be able to harass you the second it drops. But uh, but I'm looking very much forward to this. And I suspect it's going to start a lot more conversations this season. Let me just end with this. Some homework for both of us and everybody listening with respect to the morning show. Just in terms of character creation and... Um, with like a fun connection to your other parts of your work, Duanna. The two lead women on this show, Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon, their character names are mm. Jen Aniston, Alex, yeah. and Reese Witherspoon, Bradley. Now that is a choice. Exactly. <sighs> exactly. So we should watch first how it plays out. But Alex and Bradley, if I didn't, if you didn't know... I just told you are the stars of a new show and the characters are Alex and Bradley. You would not be picturing Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon. Here's what's so interesting about that. Uh, I have the IMDb cast and crew list up in front of me and Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston are, IMDb is not the be all to end all. It can be updated by many people. It's sort of like Wikipedia, but they're the only two characters who do not have names on IMDb. So I wonder whether those will be changed mm -hmm. as we go on or whether there's a reason that those haven't been published or are is Bradley actually being referred to by her surname. Uh, you're right that that is an interesting character choice. And I'm excited to slash yeah. maybe I have a skeptical face now yeah. to see how that turns out. Well, it's an interesting, as you said, interesting naming choice for the characters. Reese Witherspoon, by the way, according to Variety, and this is the most recent source because Variety sat down with Jennifer Aniston, executive producer of this show, for uh, the Power of Women issues. So it is the most current information we have. Mm -hmm. um, Reese Witherspoon's character, or sorry, let's start with Jennifer Aniston. Jennifer Aniston plays Alex Levy. Mm-hmm. And Reese Witherspoon plays Bradley Jackson. So again, interesting name choices. And also, how does it fit in and relate to the story about two women operating in a field where the men have traditionally held the power and been influential and dictated so many things? So when you're watching everybody, that's the homework. Keep that in mind because we are definitely going to come back to this when we start watching as well. So we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about Hassan Minhaj, and I discovered why it is that I like him so much, and I think it's going to make you roll your eyes. Speaking of names. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. 
Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So Vanity Fair uh, published a piece written by Sloane Crosley, a profile on Hassan Minaj. Yes. Uh, and I have been into this guy for not as long. I don't want to pretend I discovered him or came up with him. Uh, I found him out on the Dax Shepard podcast, which is one of those things I dip in and out of, but which really gets you to know somebody pretty soon. Uh, and I've loved him and this Vanity Fair profile, uh, made me love him more. Love it. Loved this profile. And this profile took me by surprise, probably because I am not an expert on his show, his Netflix show. I've watched a handful of episodes here and there. Um, I think maybe only three episodes from top to bottom. Um, for me, in that format, it's John Oliver. So you're talking about Patriot Act, his show. Yeah. And it, yeah, it is like John Oliver in terms of taking one issue yeah. and running it top to bottom. But longer. His is an hour. That's right. John Oliver goes half an hour on Sundays. So, um, but I mean, this is not a comparison. It is just where I'm coming into this from. For so sure. this was really my introduction, my Hassan Minaj 101. Right. And... It surprised me. It took me by surprise, and I loved it more for it. Because here's the thing. This is not a conciliatory person. No, indeed. And um, I love that you say that because everything that he talks about and reveals in this profile, including the fact that he got a 1310 on his SATs, which is the first line in this piece, for listeners who are not American or who didn't take the SATs, that's like good, but it's not great. Uh, as I'm fond of pointing out, uh, the fictional Buffy Summers on Buffy got a 1430. Uh, but everything that he reveals here speaks to something that you've always said about me. You're the first person to use this word to describe me. It's contrarian. Oh, yeah. He's a contrarian. He is not conciliatory. And what I mean by that is he isn't out to be nice and his first instinct is not to be liked. No. At, at least not, uh, that is not my takeaway from reading this. No, or not anymore. Again, I got a little of this from the Dax podcast, but if you have never heard that, it's highlighted again here mm -hmm. uh, that Anything he might have done before he was Hassan Minhaj is, in terms of being a bold-faced name, he's not interested in playing that game of like me, appreciate me, whatever, anymore. And that's really, I mean, for me, where I want to focus this conversation on in terms of work, because I think by and large, most people at work, in their work, Try to be lubricant. Try to not be abrasive. Try to get to a place where the work is successful without having to um, get a little sticky. And I think it's, it's pretty unusual, especially for people of color, to adopt an approach in a Western culture where 
they're contrarian and sometimes a pain in the ass. I'm not saying he's a pain in the ass, but there's a part where he talks about when he's on Ellen and he kind of spars with Ellen, I guess, in the article. It says he kind of, you know, tries to, her, tries to get her to say his name right. Um, it says here, when he appeared on Ellen earlier this year, he tried to get her to nail the pronunciation of his name. She never quite did. He argued that if America can get Benedict Cumberbatch and Timothy Chalamet right, they can handle Hassan Minaj. What America heard was charming repartee between host and guest, but Minaj's father, who was in the audience along with his mother, heard something else. And he says, I got a big lecture in the car afterwards on why do you do this stuff? Why do you make a scene? And this is, yeah, you compared yourself to him in that way. You are a pain in the ass, Duanna. Like in the sense of you'll go and ask five questions, six questions, seven questions, because you need to know. And I think that there's something really brave and interesting about being at work and not giving a shit about being a pain in the ass, so long as you believe why you're doing it and the work that you're doing. And I don't think we all have gotten there yet. I certainly haven't. I think that it's one of those things. First of all, I think that being, as you call it, a lubricant at work, which is a hilarious expression that I love. I haven't heard that before. I think it comes easier to some people than others. I think being conciliatory or uh, allowing yourself to work with whatever people have told you or the information or the whatnot, uh, I think it comes easier to some people than others. I think being a pain in the ass, as you point out, is... Uh, you know, that's the label put on it because you're right. It's not as easy either for that person or for the people who have to answer those questions. But it's one of those things that winds up being, it's like the wages of the goodness. Does that make sense? Think about the people that we've heard of in all different facets of entertainment who have particular requests. An example is like uh, those things about celebrity riders that we always used to hear when they travel, right? Jennifer Lopez requires an all-white room. Or the most famous was, uh, I can't remember which band it first was. I think it was Van Halen maybe, but it's been storied over and over. The Foo Fighters about no green M&Ms, that kind of idea. And the thing is, we all acknowledge that those are ridiculous requests, but the work that was provided by the Foo Fighters or by Jennifer Lopez or whatever was deemed to be worth it, right? Yep. And what I love about what you're saying and what Hassan Minhaj has pointed out is that whatever his pain in the assness is, whether it's demanding that people say his name correctly, and of course, uh, it echoes Uzo Aduba's mother, uh, or Uzo Aduba always says that her mother said to her, if they can say Tchaikovsky, they can learn to say Uzo Aduba. Um, it's that same sentiment. But all of that is worth it because Hassan Minhaj has such a great work product, right? Yep. Um, if he wasn't great, then he's just a pain in the ass. Well... There's a little bit of a connection, too, with we haven't been able to discuss this because we hadn't picked up from hiatus yet, but now that we're back, Michelle Williams' acceptance speech at the Emmys, where she was like, thanks to my bosses on this show, Fosse Verdon, who said yes to all of my requests. I want extra dance lessons. I want extra voice lessons. I want extra teeth, prosthetics, makeup, hair, all of that. There was never a barrier. There was never a roadblock. It was, oh, all these things are going to help you be better and do your job better to the point where you will end up on the stage at the Emmys with an Emmy. Great. Have it. 
I'm not going to say no to you. And I do think though that in, in many workplaces, we have a list of 10 things that we need to do our job and um, we'll only ask for maybe two. Yep. And I think that the fear of, and it's so backwards because I think we're all really able to uh, to advocate for other people more easily than ourselves, right? I can think of times when, you know, you show up to do a job and whatever you need from IT to get on the Wi-Fi or to get your email set up or whatnot is just not working. And you feel like, well, how many times can I call them or complain? Or should I tell my boss that this is not working? You don't want to be a pain in the ass, even though that's impacting your job. Or a week or two ago, we were out with friends and a friend was talking about a work problem, right? And we're all going, you have to demand this, you have to demand that. Like we saw it very clearly, Yeah, remember? But for that person, she's going, ah, oh, I don't know if I can, if I can ask that. That doesn't have anything to do with her personally. That has to do with how, yeah, we're all conditioned to say, oh, maybe I can get by with less. But it affects the work product ultimately. That's what he knows and that's what he's trying to, I love that he's still being lectured by his dad in the car. Like yeah. if there's anything that embodies the immigrant experience, it is that, mm-hmm. that you are a grown, successful adult. Don't be difficult. Yeah. But that your parents can see the success. They can see that he is a star on network television. Like he's on Ellen, arguably the biggest platform in the world, but they're still questioning how he governs his work. Right? Yeah. And for me, there's another, here's a small example that I have loved. Uh, There's a podcast that I love called Happier in Hollywood that we've referenced before. And the two writers on that show uh, got a kind of a mantra from somebody that they know. And it's very short. It says, they'll remember bad. They won't remember late. And that is fascinating to me. To be able to push back on a deadline even when you're up against it. Because of course, people say, we want this Tuesday. And you're like, well, they want it Tuesday. I have to do this. And to push back and say, you know what? I need till Friday. It feels uncomfortable. I can actually see anxiety in your face. Yes. I don't miss deadlines. (laughs) Right. But here's the thing. How many times have you made a deadline and then the people don't get back to you when they're supposed to, right? They leave you hanging. And the thing is, is it going to be a better product if you take the time? And do people respect you more for saying, you know what? I need my name pronounced correctly. I need this extra time to make it great. I need whatever those 10 things are on your list that you're asking for. I actually think it's counterintuitive, that, but people actually are more respectful of a pain in the ass at a certain point. At a certain point. I think that it's easier to... Uh, understand a pain in the ass request. And even us referring to it, or me, I started it, referring to it as pain in the assness is pejorative and probably unfair, right? It speaks to the conditioning. It speaks to how we perceive requests, who they're coming from, and not understanding and not giving the respect to what goes into a full-bodied, amazing product, end product, the work product. But for, you know, the purposes of our conversation, um, there's something much more tangible about a list of 
pain in the ass requests that are like pencils, paper, uh, dance lessons in Michelle Williams's example, and less tangible when it comes to somebody's name and the pronunciation of it, especially for a person of color. Um, and I have a work story that's related to this where, uh, many years ago, earlier in my career, I, um, in broadcast work for a company where we have many different outlets. There are news outlets, several of them, entertainment outlets, and we are responsible to do hits for each of them. So once or twice a week, I will appear on the news, the 24 hour news channel. Sure. And so there was an anchor, uh, who was introducing me during one of these hits and said, uh, we're joined by Lainey Lou. Now, I understand why my last name is Louie, mm-hmm. spelled L-U-I, mm-hmm. and there is an, uh, an actress, we all know her, her name is Lucy Lou. Mm-hmm. So two L-Ls, right? Lucy Lou, her last name is spelled L-I-U. Right. And it's pronounced Lou, Lucy Lou, mm-hmm. Lainey Louie. Mm-hmm. I was referred to as Lainey Lou. Right. Um, actually, I may have been referred to as Lucy Lou, but it was a, it was a thing. I think that has <laughs> happened before, if yeah. not now. Yes. Anyway, after the hit, I uh, took it, I advanced the issue with my superiors, and I was like, hey, heads up, my name was mispronounced, and... I would like it to be properly pronounced. That was fed back to the anchor who did not appreciate the feedback. let's get real here. How did you know that they didn't appreciate it? There was a phone call to me Uh from the anchor and a lecture. Like, I basically, not apology, apology, like, whatever. Sorry I pronounced your name wrong, but, you know, like, this happens. And you're 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 new in the business. And get over it, and whatever. You, what's interesting about that to me is that you pushed back on that because it was clear to you that it wasn't a slip of the tongue, a bobble, right? No. It wasn't somebody just going like, oh, Ellen DeGeneres? Like, it's not not knowing how to say it. It was an assumption that all people who mm-hmm. look a way that somebody thinks is similar, yeah. regardless of whether they are, yeah. uh, must be the same and must be pronounced yeah. the same way. It wasn't like Smith or Smythe. Right. Right? Well, sometimes Smythe or is Smith with an E at the end. Uh, yeah, or with a Y or whatever. Yeah. Yes. So it wasn't that. Anyway, so for me, it was I, that has happened to me many times, as you just said. Mm-hmm. That was maybe the only time I've gone out of my way to address it. Hasan Minhaj appears to be making a habit of doing it more often. Right. And again, I've done it once. Uh-huh. Probably it has happened to me, someone's pronounced my name Lou, in the last six months. Right. I've been in the business 15 years now. Yes. And I'm still not consistently correcting people. Right. And I appreciate that. But I think two things about that. I think that everybody chooses their own. uh, Hills to die on is not the right phrase, but it's the only one we have, right? Yeah. Uh, My husband came upstairs the other day from his office and giggled and said, guess what? I found my hill to die on. I'm going to the mat on this thing. (laughs) Which killed me because I'm like, okay, great. Like, uh, but 
you have other things that you have pushed back on. I know that you are rigid, even at work, about protecting your work time, about not being interrupted or otherwise having time to write and do all the things that you do in order to maintain your schedule, right? Yep. Hassan Minhaj has chosen his name and his pronunciation of it, and God knows I relate to that, as the thing he's not going to walk away from. But I also think that the thing is, whatever you push back on, the thing that you choose, if you choose one thing in your own office, whether it is not being interrupted or not being conscripted to go to meetings that are going to waste your time or whatever it is, or pushing back on deadlines when you need to, the more you do it, the easier it becomes, right? You don't ever flinch now at saying, you know what? I can't do that at this time. I have to work. I have to blog. I have to whatever. Correct? Yeah, pretty much. Um, and I think that maybe it's the thing that either bothers you most or that infringes upon you the most is when it's the time. Or maybe it's the thing where you yourself feel the most discomfort for not having done so, right? If you don't protect your work time, then you feel bad about the work product you put out. And who can you blame for that? Nobody but you, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, In this Vanity Fair article, there's also a really cool video segment that I will link to and I recommend that you watch. It's a a segment where they ask increasingly personal questions. And Hassan Minhaj talks about a time when he didn't correct the pronunciation of his name and felt bad about it himself. And the guy who was talking said, you know, it doesn't matter. And he said, yeah, you're right. It doesn't. And then they hold on his face. And that's kind of indicative of his comedy style as well. Uh, And they hold on him going, I really believed that for a while, which you can see where that's a problem for him, right? That that was the thing that made him feel worst about himself. So I think whatever is the issue that you push back on, it has to be about the thing that you yourself know you're going to chastise yourself about at three in the morning, right? Yeah. Whoever is giving you a problem or saying, no, your request is unreasonable, they're not losing sleep over it. But if you're like, I should have pushed harder for this or that or yep. whatever, you know, a lot of people really talk about that where a lot of people really talk about this where their kids are concerned, right? Mm-hmm. People say, oh, I have to advocate for my kid or I yeah. do things for my kid that I would never do for myself. But if you think of your work as we do as your kid in a way, right? As something that needs to be protected and nurtured and grown, then you get to advocate for it and you feel okay about so doing. Does that make sense? It makes totally sense. And And I think it's applicable again. I mean, this is going to be always consistent in this podcast in real work environments, whether that's an extra server you need, whether or not that's an extra week to work on the brief, whatever it is. More staff, you know, for if people pile on all kinds of work on you and you say, you know what, I need help here. I think people think it makes you look weak to say something like that, or I need this or that. But what you're actually saying is to deliver the quality of work that you and I both know I can provide, then this is what I need for that. And when it's respectfully received, it feels great, right? And it, you and I often do this. Uh, you ask me to write about something, often something that, you know, I'm going to get like all fired up about and really, you know, kind of roll on it. And it sometimes 
I'm right up against the wire of a deadline that we've set or that I intrinsically know is your closing time for, for the site, right? Yeah. And as often as not, even as you say to me, hey, how much longer is that going to be? Uh, you also say or say publicly, which I so appreciate, that was worth waiting for, which in turn makes me work harder to get to the deadline in particular because you go, it's worth the time that you spent on it. Whatever you had to do to get to that place and that piece is what you need to do. And I think the more that we all advocate for those things in our work, the better off we are. Um, the other reason, the other thing that he says that I love in the same vein in that video as well, it's not in the print piece, is that he lives in New York because he hates LA. And that's also another reason I love him because I also hate LA. I, yeah. And that is, see, this is one where I'm uncomfortable with telling my truth, which is I hate LA, but especially in scripted TV, that's not okay to say. No. Um, and, you know, A, for him to say that and feel okay about it and to say, I'm going to make this show in New York to push back on that is valuing himself and his work and how it's going to work for him and his family. He talks a lot about how his work affects his family in both large and small ways. Uh, the more you say it, the more you make it true. Seriously, who wouldn't want to work in New York over L.A.? <sighs> uh, apparently, millions of people. Oh, I, the weather doesn't hold it for me. Sorry. Like, I, whenever I go to L.A., I don't feel like I need to go outside. You have to drag me outside when we're in L.A. That is true. Any other city in the world, I'm like, I want to go out. I want to go meet it. I want to. And in L.A., I am very content to stay inside a hotel room and not walk around, not drive around, go nowhere. I mean, I think there's a whole other segment on why that is. <laughs> and I'm sure if you are living in L.A., please send us the uh, the outsideness that you do. It's just the weather for them. It's like, oh, there's no snow. Well, and I think too, though, we often in LA are on real deadlines. So you don't have time to do the things that make the outdoors worth it. The hikes and the walks around the reservoir and whatnot. Those are not things that you're spending time on when you're in LA for 36 hours. Uh, just before we leave this topic, you started off saying that this profile was written by Sloan Crossley. Yes. Uh, and I don't know how many people know that name. She's an essayist who has written a number of books that I really enjoy. I was told there'd be cake is one of them. And uh, the names of the others are escaping me. She has uh, three, I think, all New York Times bestsellers. But the reason that you referenced it is because she is very much a part of this piece, right? If you know her, then you know who she is when she refers to I say this and I say that and I compare myself to Minhaj in this way or that way. And if you don't, then you don't. So I'm very curious about whether or not this is a, a positive or a negative for people in terms of we're always talking about the evolving nature of the celebrity profile, right? So this is not Interview Magazine where both people are supposed to be well-known, but it's not an anonymous person either. And Sloane Crosley has also written about one of the things she wrote an essay about was essentially playing herself in a Gossip Girl episode. Yeah. I think she did actually play herself. Uh, so the self-referencing of somebody who is supposed to be talking about somebody else uh, is a curious thing, right? How did it feel for you? 
I it felt great for me, and I it didn't um, it didn't I didn't bump up against it in the same way that I'd never bump up against uh, Taffy Brodesser Ackner putting herself in the profiles or Allison P Davis or E Alex Jung. There's a way to do it, and you almost have to do it. Because when you're writing a celebrity profile, you're interacting with a celebrity. You are being invited into their environment. So your perspective is important. It should never be not important. Um, That is my view on a celebrity profile. Like, you can't really um, observe from the margins. A A true celebrity profile happens as you are, you're supposed to be, equally engaging with another human being. Um, that said, sometimes it doesn't work out that way. It's, it, it's, it, it doesn't work out that way because you are no longer an observer and processing your observations through a particular lens of participation. You either become a fan or you lose that objectivity. That's when it becomes a problem. In this case, it wasn't a problem for me. It's like that back to the future concept a little bit, right? Like you can be there and you can be a part of being there, but you as the interviewer don't want to influence. You can't disrupt the habitat. That's interesting. Or you don't want to influence the way that mm-hmm. the that the interview goes, right? Right. And of course, this is a part of your job as a celebrity interviewer where you are necessarily there when you're on television. So I'm curious too about whether we have different rules for it in print versus in long form TV interviews, for example. Well, I mean, I, I would <laughs> like, maybe this is unfair, but I would argue there's a different level of difficulty, a different degree of difficulty when is it on, when it's on TV, because on TV, they're not giving you a 12 hour, they're not giving you a 12 hour experience with a follow-up of two hours the next day, right? Often these celebrity profiles that are written are you're invited to, you know, join them on set for six hours, plus you go for coffee or dinner the next day. We don't get that in TV. And of course, even after those experiences, then you take it home for a week and kind of puzzle through your experiences exactly. and make a story out of them. Correct. Um, so anyway, Sloan Crossley, I think, did a great job. I think there have been some examples recently where certain people were criticized for their celebrity profiles. I mean, we don't have to call out any names, <laughs> but uh, everybody was aware of the Vogue interview with Rihanna that uh, broke last week and of the ways that that reporter inserted herself into the story, whether it was misunderstood as she implies on her Twitter or not. Uh, Meanwhile, yeah, I think Sloane Crossley did a great job. And I think that just generally people who enjoy this podcast would probably enjoy her books of essays. So let us know what you think, or if you don't, um, I'd be very curious to see how they land. And go be a pain in the ass. Please. And yeah, (laughs) let us know what your things are that you've advocated to have at your job. In like a non-abusive way, obviously. (laughs) Um, Or, you know, or or what's the one thing where, yeah, where you're willing to be seen as a problem in order to do what you have to do. A big shakeup in news, in broadcast news the other day, uh, Shepard Smith, the chief news anchor for Fox News, stepped down made the announcement at the end of his show on Friday, and it was a huge surprise um, in the industry, but also for his colleagues, particularly the colleagues who had to follow his newscast. 
They clearly didn't know. Um, so this was a decision. It sounded like it was a quick decision. He uh, had been talking to Fox Brass. Um, he said that they asked him to stay. He did not want to stay. They're letting him go. Um, the non-compete is in, in effect. We'll talk about that in a bit. If, uh, you know, for those of you who have questions, a non-compete is you have to be out of, uh, the seat for a, ma- a certain amount. What do you want to say, Duanna? Well, let's, let's, I want to start with talking about, I'm going to be super honest. This yeah. name was not known to me before we started talking about this today. And in fact, I don't think... Not only have we never said Fox News on this show before, except maybe in reference to Megyn Kelly, I don't think I ever saw a day when we would be discussing a Fox News anchor in this level of depth. No. This is new. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned. So this was a real shock. And what's most interesting is, to me, is less about the wares of it, but how precisely it went down. So as you pointed out, um, he has a show that is necessarily live, I think, uh, because of what we learned later. He signs off at the end of his episode and is like, by the way, I quit. This is it. He didn't say I quit and shock everybody. It's not quite a scenario from the newsroom, but it was obviously not that far off because, as you point out, They maybe, you know, they do the out and then they go immediately into the intro for the next show. And his colleague, uh, the guy who hosts the show immediately afterward. Neil Cavuto. Was very, very clearly shocked, right? Like said, whoa, I'm a little stunned in the moment. So let's talk about live TV logistics. Uh, I imagine that these are two shows that are on different sets within the same building. Mm -hmm. Is this what you feel? Yeah. Not within earshot of each other, because that doesn't work in terms of production, but probably he is watching and or hearing the live feed of what's happening on the network in his ear, right? That's right. So he's sitting there prepping his notes, getting ready for his show, and then the last two minutes, which he's used to hearing, you know, whatever the, I don't know what the like usual out would be on the Shep Smith show. Do they talk about like a water skiing penguin? <laughs> um, but instead it's like, by the way, I'm out. Yep. And with no warning. You open on Neil Cavuto. Who kind of was sputtering. Yeah. He, he was open mouthed. Yes. Um, and he describes himself as being shell-shocked. So he heard in real time along with the viewing audience. Right. Um, so he spent a minute sputtering. Yeah. And admittedly so, and apologizing for sputtering. Yeah, because that is meant to be the, like, the line in news that you do not cross, right? Uh, last week there was an MSNBC anchor who had the same scenario as the BBC uh, hit a few years ago. Her child came on set in the middle of her live broadcast and, you know, she really tried to roll with it and did a pretty damn good job, but that's because there's a real premium on not ever being blindsided on live TV. Right. No matter what happens, you're supposed to keep going. Right. Right. And then, as you pointed out, I was like, oh, wow, that's Neil Cavuto is so shocked. And I was about to turn off the cliff. And you were like, no, 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 keep going. (laughs) Yep. 
Because he threw to John Roberts at the White House. Right. Their White House correspondent. Again, like there's big (laughs) shit happening at the White House all of the time, but especially now. Right. And instead of leading with whatever important like world goddamn news is happening, John Roberts also was like... Uh, yeah, I, he said, I think he said he, it felt like he got hit by a subway. I <laughs> like, well, and to, to your point, to get real inside baseball about it, if you're in the field, John Roberts is in the field. That's the terminology that we use for TV. He's in the field, meaning he's on location. He's live from the white house. They wear an earpiece. They're coming to him live. We call that an IFB. And the truck, the satellite is on. They have it switched on and they would have had it switched on before the start of Neil Cavuto's show because you're testing the line, you're making sure your audio is okay. So in his ear, he's getting the feed from what's going on live at Fox News. So he also would have heard the last two minutes of Shep Smith's show when Shep signs off, resigns, see you later, peace out. And then he would have heard Neil Cavuto's one minute of sputtering before coming to him. So he's getting all of this too and processing it in real time. And he's in the field. To your point, Duanna, he's trying to report on what's happening at the White House. But these are human beings. And one of their colleagues, one of their very respected colleagues, according to them, has just left without saying goodbye. And they are on camera reacting. And that also became part of this story. So here's the thing that's fascinating to me. First of all, I uh, while you were talking, I had to Google IFB. Uh, IFB stands for interruptible foldback, also known as interrupted foldback, interruptible feedback, or interrupt for broadcast, uh, meaning that people can talk into it and talk into your ear and tell you things, right? Which is why you see people touching their ear going, uh, oh, sorry, <laughs> I'm getting a breaking news report that in fact, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um But here's what's fascinating to me. So broadcast news, the actual people physically making the news and beaming it to our TVs or phones or whatever, the premium is on being unflappable, being like never, ever, ever sputtering or et cetera, right? On the other hand, uh, when I look at uh, Shep Smith saying, I asked to quit, there's very interesting language where he says... I requested to leave and after, or I, I asked to be excused from my contract or something. Yeah. And after being requested to stay, the boss is obliged. Right. Something to that effect. Right. So what that means to me is the contract holders, the big wigs, uh, HR, if you will. Right. So companies, especially big ones, especially ones who have a massive, uh, public presence like a Fox News are always about controlling image. So what do you think the conflict was between the people who wanted to know or would have wanted to know that this was happening for Shep Smith? I'm thinking about the executive producer of Neil Cavuto's show who's like, if I had known I could have prepped him, we wouldn't be in this situation. (laughs) Right. Right. The people whose jobs are being interrupted versus the people who want to control the story not getting out. Because if this Shep Smith story had gotten out even an hour or two before this live broadcast, then you get a jump on the story. Like, what do you think the philosophy was and how this was handled? I don't know, because I've watched that Shep Smith sign-off three or four times now. I think he's reading it from the prompter. 
Mm-hmm. So to get real technical, in order to read something off a prompter, you have to write the script and enter it into the prompter. So it goes in somewhere. Someone uploads it to the whatever software system that they use. They put it in the prompter so that, you know, the prompter, for those of you who don't know, the teleprompter is also your camera. Yeah, so it's, the words are appearing over the camera so that that's you can right. read while looking, looking into at the, the screen. Camera. So he's written... And you would imagine he wrote his own, like… Either he wrote it or he stood over the show's (laughs) writer while they wrote it. Right. And they would have had to do it themselves, put it into the prompter themselves, and have it out. So it must have been so last minute or so secretive when the script was entered into the prompter. Like where I work… You can see a person's script, like through you can you can lots of people see the script. Yes, and I've also including the teleprompter operator, right? right? Who's rolling the prompter in the control room. That said, I've also worked as a writer on live TV when there are last second things happening and you can actually update it. I'm doing frantic typing motions here. You can actually update it almost up to the second that it's being read. And we've all seen clips of people reading a prompter and being shocked by what's on there, right? Because they are on autopilot and then all of a sudden they're reading something that, and all, oh my goodness, we've just received a report, blah, blah, blah. Um, Debates over whether do they do that in the IFB and tell you the thing versus here it is on the prompter. But as you mentioned, the wording of that uh, speech that farewell by Shep was so specific, um, and it was quite well written. And there were s- like certain thoughts that he wanted to convey. This was not a last minute upload. I mean, you know, this was you would imagine too, since it was broadcast on Fox, it would have had to be sent upstairs for vetting as well. I guess I don't know how much control he has over his own show or. Did he and his executive producer go rogue? The What's underneath all this is that Shep Smith ultimately quit for reasons of, of ideological disagreement, right? Yes. I am not a Fox News watcher. I don't even know if it's available for broadcasting Canada. Uh, like, I don't even know if you could get you it if you wanted to it. pay for it. But it is. Yeah. Uh, it's there. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to claim to be unbiased about it. I think the network as a whole is generally extremely biased and ergo it's not for me. But he left because there were things happening that he could no longer abide, right? That's the word. And for some time now, minimum two years, he has been openly critical of the current administration um, and is known to be the most unbiased at that network. Sure. So is known to be not of the other opinion anchors who are much more inflammatory. For the most part, his reputation is that he sticks to the facts. Um, And when the facts as reported elsewhere on his network are not facts, he's known to have called them out. But, so this is an, yes, this is an ideological parting. Um, He was very professional 
and was not angry about it, but it was a shock. The shock reverberated not only in his own network, but other networks covered his announcement, which was another mind-blowing fucking thing for me because you go to CNN and CNN was talking about the departure of an anchor on Fox News, MSNBC, the same thing. I mean, yes, he's a big figure. The same way that people, yeah, report on anything that becomes... Uh, anybody that is that big a deal almost supersedes uh, network loyalty, if you will, yeah. right? But it's still, it's still to have it on other news broadcasts about another news show and the person who anchors the news show, um, it, was, it was quite something. For sure. And the other thing about it that's quite something that's really interesting is that whenever you usually hear somebody leave and say, thank you so much, I've enjoyed my time here so much, and blah, blah, but it's time for me to go, Uh, they often say, you'll be seeing me soon, or whatnot. They're usually at the end of their contracts, and so that means that they have negotiated a move to somewhere else that is going to be announced in a number of days or Mm -hmm. weeks, right? We referenced Megyn Kelly. Yeah. And the shift from Fox News to NBC was, I think, a month or two, right? Yeah. Shep Smith, as you pointed out at the beginning of this conversation, said, I'm not going to be anywhere because of the non-compete clause. I mean, he didn't name the non-compete, but that is, it has, it has, it is standard. Um, It's not unusual to have a non-compete in a contract, especially for broadcast. At all. Yeah. But also in Silicon Valley, in many other industries like the tech industry, you have a non-compete in... Like if you are a Google employee, there is a non-compete in your contract saying that like, you know, you have to take a certain amount of time before you rush out this door to go into that door. And there's been a lot of talk recently in tech about how non-compete clauses are unfair. Well, uh, first of all, even my hairstylist has a non-compete clause. I wonder too if there are different versions of them if you quit, if you don't complete your contract as opposed to if you do complete your contract and don't choose to renew. Because I think that if everybody kind of agrees about where you're going, that's one thing. But if you decide, hey, I'm out, Mm -hmm. you can't just quit on a Friday and land somewhere else on a Monday. You have to spend out the the duration of that contract, which by the way, you're probably not getting your money for. Uh, If you quit in order to essentially protect that company's investment. Some non-compete clauses are as long as six months. And the fact is, is that um, they typically, if you want to go the route of, of getting lawyers involved to challenge them, they don't, people, there are experts who say that they don't hold up. Even though you signed a contract and there is a non-compete in the contract, afterwards, for whatever reason that you want to leave, you can get that taken care of and you can, you know, if it's six months, you can work somewhere else. In two, it's just that not a lot of people have the resources, i.e. money, to go hire a lawyer to go and fight the non-compete clause in the contract. So clearly, uh, if Shep is putting it out there, you won't see me for a while. He's referencing the fact that there is probably an agreement that he has to stay off the air for a certain number of, like, un- a, ton- like a ton- amount of time. Right. And as you say, that can be really restrictive. The most famous in a related but unrelated industry is... Uh, Kesha and her contract mm-hmm. with um, Dr. Luke. Thank you. 
so, or if everybody's kind of friendly about it, then yes, you can get your lawyers to talk to their lawyers and make it pretty seamless. That but doesn't no. seem to be the case here. No, he's the chief news anchor, or he was the chief news anchor. So he, whether or not other people are aware of it, for them was a poster person, right, for their news division. And so, yeah, it's, I understand why they wouldn't want him to be like fucking on CNN basically after the weekend. That said, the fact that people like CNN and MSNBC and other broadcasters were covering this breathlessly, I might add, the conversations that were happening off air were, oh my God, where do you think he's going to go? I, As I say, I did not know this dude before, but now this is a huge important part of his story, right? Yes. Now he's not just a skilled news anchor. Now he's the guy who quit Fox News out of an ideological principle. Mm -hmm. I'm so principled I left. As a journalist. When we've seen dozens upon dozens of people in politics and in journalism not take that perspective, right? So he's separating himself. So he's separating himself from the pack in that way. Like, look how morally upstanding I am. I quit rather than do this one more day. Mm -hmm. He didn't work out the contract and then go shopping. Um, so that's an important part of his story. And yeah, he's going to be hugely in demand for places, including this wee tiny media outlet that we are, that would never have looked at him before. No. And, you know, immediately after this story broke, I, I saw like either a photo agency report or something about Jeff Zucker, who's the head of CNN. Mm -hmm. um, and he was asked about Shep Smith. So this is now within the industry reverberating. They covered it on the air, on the competing networks, I might add. And, and the reason, I just want to interrupt you, because the reason you don't otherwise do that is because why promote another network? That's right. Why give attention to another network uh, on your own time and why, you know, essentially spending your advertiser dollars promoting somebody else, it's unheard of. No. So Jeff Zucker's now being asked, hey, have you heard about Chef Smith? Like, you know, and behind that question is, hey, did you hear what happened with Chef Smith? Are you going to be calling him? And so for all the anchors who covered the Chef Smith story at the competing networks the other day, when they signed off, the gossip, wherever they go, water cooler, bar, whatever, that is what they're messaging themselves. WhatsApp on their slacks. What is Shep going to do? Who do you think is going to get him? Who do you think is going after them? Is my job in jeopardy? Well, that's <laughs> what the perspective is to me. You're actually getting to a place where it's like, I may have just reported on the guy who's going to be sitting in my seat on Monday. Yeah. Not literally on Monday, but you know, that could be the case. Exactly. So this is what is, and that's, I mean, listen, and that also happens in other industries. I talked about non-compete clauses in tech. In tech, it's a small world, small world that does big things, but they all know the, the I don't know, the chief um, whatever development officer at this place and that place. When they leave, everybody knows about it and everybody's wondering where is he or she going. That is a thing. I wonder whether this is becoming a theme. I feel as though we have said this more and more on this podcast in the last year, and especially even in this episode, 
more and more we've started to say, this has never happened before. This isn't done. And yet more and more, there are things that are rules that are established that are now breaking down. So I humbly propose that this may be a theme for our season, uh, the rise of the contrarian uh, or the people breaking the rules, that this is a time in Hollywood and in show business where the unthinkable is now becoming possible the more people sort of step outside the lines. Yeah. I, I And this is also fascinating from our perspective of loving the inside baseball in particular of morning show news or that kind of world. I mean, if you think about two years ago, is it hasn't been two years? Charlie Rose vacated a like vacated his spot at CBS. Um, and sure, CBS has done fine without him. They've moved on. They signed Gail King to a huge contract. But now, oh look, there's a Shep Smith. And what does that mean? And how do we deal with that? And yeah, when things are in flux, then everybody has to change the rules and change the way they address things. Anyway, um, whenever Shep Smith's non-compete expires, he has now soared to the top of the list of gets, I would imagine, for all of these networks going into an election year. This is really, really interesting. I mean, we, it doesn't have to be political to be interesting. And that is not the goal here to talk about like the actual intricacies of the politics and the policies. But we are exactly 12 months. The election is November 2020, yes? Mm -hmm. The U.S. federal election is like essentially 12 months and two weeks from today. And a major news anchor is now a free agent. Essentially, with one move, he has made himself into an A-lister. Where does he go? And, you know, you referenced John Oliver earlier, and I just have to say that I watched a an interview with him recently where he was talking about the, the Canadian federal election is uh, less than two weeks away. It's on October 21st. And John Oliver referenced the 2015 election, saying that uh, Canada was talking about its longest ever election season. Uh, it's Our election is much, much closer, and yet it's still not as much of a news issue as uh, the U.S. election one year away is. So just a perspective shift for one of the many reasons why this is such a huge deal and why it's clearly a baller move. It's clearly a baller move. And now, I mean, I mentioned CBS uh, this morning and Gail King, you know, she's on that morning show with um, Anthony Mason and Tony Ducoupel. Anthony Mason and Tony are not known to me. Nope. <laughs> I know Gail. I 100% know Gail. I'm not saying this is where he's going, but Given that that popped up in my mind, because I can tell you on GMA, Good Morning America, I know the dudes, George Stephanopoulos, Michael Strahan. I know the people. But on CBS, if they're in third place in the morning and they're going back full circle to the morning show and Jennifer Aniston, how we opened this episode. And if they're trying to compete in an election year, would that be a major fucking get to have Gail sitting opposite a conservative anchor? Yeah, 
I mean, sure, but also by the time this non-compete plays out, however long it's left, is morning news going to be the thing? Is uh, is nightly news going to be the thing? Is there going to be a move that we don't see, like Shep Smith on Apple Plus or something, that is a totally new way that somebody who's a newly minted power player gets the platform that obviously he's looking for and arguably deserves. It's enough. Well, on that day, I wonder if everybody else is going to be shell-shocked <laughs> like when that announcement comes out, if we're going to get the same open mouth stares and sputtering for a minute that we got the other day. Well, I mean, yeah, because I can see a world where it's like, oh yeah, Shep Smith has a new show on Facebook Watch. And we're all like, what? Where? But maybe that'll be the case by then that that's what makes the most sense and is the best move. And with that, that is our first episode of season four. I'm so here for it. Uh, I'm so excited to be back and that you guys, as we do, do care about the inside baseball, maybe more than ever. We love hearing from you and we're going to be hearing more from you this season. That's something that we want to do more is... uh, Get your feedback and point out where it's coming. In the meantime, please continue to give us your feedback wherever you get your podcasts. Rate and review us. It's so important to us to know how we're doing, to know what you're responding to, so that we can continue to do work for Show Your Work that you want to hear about. And frankly, it helps new people find the podcast, which we love because we know there are more people out there who love work as much as we do. Until then, until next week, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back. Work hard. Show your work. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.